This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Thinking about the war in Gaza, I keep coming back to this one idea. The end game. When I say that, I mean... Where are all of us going to be left in a year? Two years. Because Israel and the U.S. have an intended goal here. They say they want to destroy Hamas or eliminate Hamas, crush Hamas. And it's not clear to me if that's achievable. It is not possible to destroy such an organization because it is an ideology. It is an idea as well as an organization and a military force. Yeah, the word Hamas means courage, right? The word Hamas means zeal. It is an Arabic acronym for the movement, which is Harak al-Islamiyya al-Muqawama, which is the Islamic resistance movement. Mohammed Hafez teaches about Islamic movements at the Naval Postgraduate School. And he wants people to think beyond Hamas, the terrorist organization to consider the ideology that animates its members and what will become of it when the war is done. Because the thing about Hamas, he says, is that plenty of Palestinians support its goals. Even if they disagree with its tactics and its violence, they still agree that it is a part of the national liberation movement. And that is that makes it really difficult to defeat such an organization. Should it be part of the liberation movement, given its tactics that were displayed on October 7th? What Hamas says is every national liberation movement has a right to resist occupation, colonization of their land through armed struggle. Whether this right is wise is subject for debate. But in their perspective, this is one of the rights of any people under occupation is to resist through any means necessary. You know, I was reading about the history of Hamas, and I ran into this quote from an Israeli who'd been in charge of Mossad, which is the Israeli CIA intelligence service, 15 years back. He said, and this was years ago, before the current conflict, he said Hamas can be crushed, but the price of crushing Hamas is a price that Israel would prefer not to pay. Do you think that's still True? I think the attacks of October 7th were a game changer. And this is such an escalation that Israel is very much interested today in regaining its deterrence against Hamas, against Hezbollah. 
No matter what. No matter what. So I agree with his assessment. You could try to crush Hamas, but in doing so, you are going to crush the Israeli soul, you're going to crush legitimacy for the state of Israel, and you're only going to harden minds and hearts and ultimately lead to more radicalism down the line. Today on the show, to understand where Hamas is now, we're going to look back to where it's from. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hamas's story starts before Gaza was even under Israeli control. Back when Gaza was Egyptian territory, an Islamist group called the Muslim Brotherhood began to spread into the Strip. Its mission was to Islamize society, and it provided social services, like schools, hospitals. Then, in 1967, Israel took control of Gaza in the Six-Day War. And while Israeli forces cracked down on the Nationalist Palestine Liberation Organization, or the PLO, they took a much more permissive approach towards the Muslim Brotherhood. And in the year 1976, Sheikh Ahmad Yassin, who was the founder of Hamas and a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, established what came to be known as the Islamic Association with Israel's permission. This association, along with two other institutions, the Islamic Center and Islamic University, they combined to deliver to the people of Gaza medical clinics, daycare services, Islamic education, uh, charitable organizations. And these networks became the core out of which Hamas grew prior to their formation, official formation, in 1987. Hamas formed during the First Intifada. Could you tell me about the First Intifada and how it led to what we now know as Hamas? The First Intifada started with an accident where a number of laborers were killed uh, by an Israeli driver. It is largely believed to have been an accident, but among the Palestinians, they saw this as a provocation. And so what happened is you had uh, a number of uh, people go out in protests. People began to hurl stones at Israeli patrols and Israeli soldiers that were occupying Gaza, and that spread quickly to the West Bank. And then the Intifada began to take on organizational forms where Palestinian shops, Palestinian civic society organizations began to boycott Israel and engage in strikes, protests. But the iconic feature of the first Intifada was young boys uh, and girls um, picking up stones and hurling them at Israeli soldiers who were firing at them initially with bullets, then with rubber bullets, and then later on they would capture them and try to break their bones. Since the Palestinians of the West Bank and Gaza began their uprising against Israeli military occupation last December, they have been tear-gassed, beaten, jailed without trial, and expelled. 
This really turned the tide of public opinion nationally inside of Israel as well as internationally against Israeli policy of occupation. Hmm. And did that also contribute to the rise of Hamas? Because people saw what was happening and thought, we need to do more here? Exactly. As I said, Hamas started out in the mid-1980s reconsidering the quietest apolitical stance of the Muslim Brotherhood, and they wanted to do something. And the Intifada became the opportunity for them to act. So the Intifada started in December 1987, and in a matter of a week, Hamas issues their first communique, essentially saying that the only way to liberate Palestine is through an armed struggle, through a jihad. And um, they really took advantage of the outbreak of violence, the mobilization of the masses to sort of present themselves as an alternative to the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, which at that time was being led by Yasser Arafat. So the Intifada was a, a critical point, a turning point for Hamas, and that is the, when they officially come into existence. How quickly did the group begin attacking Israeli citizens? Hamas begins to deploy suicide bombings in the early 1990s. I think according to my research, around 1992 may have been the first suicide attack. This is a tactic that they've picked up from Hezbollah. And this is a tactic that they since deployed, particularly in the period from 1993 all the way to about 2005. They sent devastating attacks, uh, attackers, suicide bombers, inside of Israel, in Tel Aviv, in Haifa, and in other cities where they blew buses, they blew up cafes, and they have attacked other targets, military and civilian. When did the Israeli government first respond to Hamas's creation? Like, realize there's a change here. This Islamist group that we've tolerated is now behaving differently, and we need to treat them differently. The main confrontation between Israel and Hamas took place around 1992. And that's when Israel decided to deport, I want to say, a few hundred Hamas leaders and activists, and they deported them to southern Lebanon, where they were set up in camps and tents and being hosted in an area that was dominated by Hezbollah. That was a strategic error on the part of Israel because Hamas and Hezbollah begin to form strong ties, ties that have not been severed since. Hmm. You know, in 1993, the first intifada ended and there was the signing of the Oslo Accords. This was the famous handshake on the White House lawn between Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin. The children of Abraham, the descendants of Isaac and Ishmael, have embarked together on a bold journey. Together, today, with all our hearts and all our souls, we bid them shalom, salam, peace. Was Hamas part of that process? Hamas was opposed to the peace process. They called it istislam, not salam, meaning it is surrender, not peace. So their official position was to reject the Oslo peace process to reject the two-state solution. And they were, as such, they were not part of the peace process. In fact, in the mid-1990s, they sent suicide bombers 
at opportune times in order to derail the peace process. They were spoilers, not uh, peacemakers. This is a long story, but at the core of the problem between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority are two issues. The first issue is recognizing a two-state solution. The Palestinian Authority believes we need to stick by that policy and Hamas needs to accept it to maintain international legitimacy. Hamas, on the other hand, says we do not accept a two-state solution. We want the entirety of historic Palestine. The second issue that divides them is the issue of, of violence. Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority believe the armed struggle against Israel is a failed strategy, one that does not garner them international legitimacy, one that only isolates them <clears throat> with the actors that matter, particularly the United States. Hamas, on the other hand, believes that violence is necessary to liberate their lands and that it is naive to think that with international pressure that Israel will deliver the goods. So that is the fundamental difference that has divided these two movements, and that persists to this day. My understanding is that Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in particular, almost nurtured Hamas because he looked at what was happening, this divide between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas, and thought, I can take advantage of this. If if Palestinians are split in terms of who's in control of them and who they support, that means they're fractured. That means they're less strong and less able to fully engage with Israel. Is that true? That is true. Prime Minister Netanyahu does not believe in a two-state solution. He believes in a maximalist position of ceding very little control to the Palestinians in the form of autonomy. He believes in expanding the settlements in the West Bank to create facts on the ground that make a two-state solution impossible. But the other thing that Benjamin Netanyahu believes in is in this mantra that there is no partner for peace. And when he encourages division, a divide and conquer strategy between the West Bank and Gaza, between the PA and Hamas, he could essentially argue to the Israeli public that, look, I want to make peace, but there is no partner for peace. If I make concessions to the PA, they can't control Hamas. And if I give territory to Hamas, they will fire rockets at us. That has been one of the main criticisms levied at Netanyahu of late, because despite all that he did with Gaza and and Hamas, you still got the atrocious and the deadly uh, slaughter on October 7th uh, of this year. We'll be back after a break. I want to talk about how Hamas officially entered the scene politically, because we've been talking about Hamas as a terrorist organization, as a, a group that sort of emerged in the in the late 80s. But I want to talk about what happened that allowed Hamas to seize control of Gaza. So can you take me back to when that turn happened? My understanding is that there was an election in 2006. It was actually it was supported by the United States. 
That is absolutely correct. You may recall during that time, uh, President uh, George W. Bush was interested in promoting democracy in the Middle East as a way to counter violent extremism. But what he did not realize is that in a context of the Palestinian-Israeli um, struggle, there was a great deal of support for Hamas. There are a few reasons why Hamas commanded a degree of loyalty back then. Some Palestinians did favor armed resistance to reclaim land in Israel. Others felt frustrated. The Oslo Accords that the PLO had negotiated hadn't resulted in the two-state solution that was promised. Some American diplomats worried that Gaza was not ready for free and fair elections, and they tried to get higher-ups to block the vote. But the Bush administration didn't want to intervene, and Hamas ended up winning. Because of this, what ends up happening is that Hamas wants to take the reins of power in the West Bank and Gaza, and the Palestinian Authority under Mahmoud Abbas begins to undermine their ability to do so. It seems to me like the United States hoped that democracy, a democratic moment in Gaza, would automatically lead to better angels taking the day. Why didn't that happen? The U.S. sometimes engages in mirror imaging, thinking that when we have democratic institutions, that moderates will rise to the top. We see this today in our own country, in the United States, where democracy sometimes can lead to populist movements, even right-wing or extreme movements. And this is no different in the Palestinian context. The U.S. made a miscalculation, thinking that democracy is going to bring about moderate forces. Definitely, it did not work to their advantage. After winning a bear plurality of votes in 2006, just 44% compared to the more moderate Fatah party's 41% of votes. My understanding is that Hamas seized control in Gaza. How did that work? And what does that tell you about how Hamas has been operating in the years since? So this is a complicated story, but uh, the long and short of it is this. Hamas believed that once they were elected, that they had popular legitimacy to pursue a new course of action. Mahmoud Abbas, who was the president of the Palestinian Authority, did not see it that way. And instead, he began to take measures to undermine Hamas's ability to govern. Hamas saw this as sabotage, as a, a way for the Palestinian Authority to undermine the choice of the Palestinian people. At the same time, there were forces within the Palestinian Authority who wanted to crush Hamas militarily. Hamas sensed that there was a, a coup brewing against them, so they decided to act first by decisively driving the Palestinian Authority security forces out of Gaza. But from that moment forward, that is in mid-2007, the Palestinian Authority is split into two. There's a government in Gaza ruled by Hamas and a government in the West Bank ruled by the Palestinian Authority Fatah faction Mahmoud Abbas. Was Hamas good at governing? Or is Hamas good at governing? Hamas has governed uh, since 2005 
And um, it is really hard to gauge the level of support for its governance because since that time, 17 years ago, there has not been another election. However, my estimation is that Hamas's strength in the Palestinian movement goes up and down, their support goes up and down based on progress in the peace process. If there's genuine peace being developed and advanced through dialogue and negotiations between the Palestinian Authority and Israel, Hamas's support tends to decline. But when the peace process is stalled, when Palestinians see the growth of settlements, when they see aggressive settlers attacking Palestinians and seizing their homes and their olive groves, then support for Hamas rises. So the question here isn't whether to moderate Hamas or not to moderate it. The question is, how do you marginalize Hamas by advancing the peace process and meeting the aspirations of the Palestinian people who have been under occupation for 56 years? You've said that Hamas's popularity waxes and wanes based on where things are in the peace process. You've said Hamas is less popular among Palestinians if there is a viable idea of peace on the table, that Hamas is more popular when it seems like there's no hope. It seems to me like we're at this moment where the hope is shattered for so many and no one is talking about peace. And yet at the same time, Israel is talking about crushing Hamas. I guess I wonder what the past tells us about what happens now. Because it seems to me like if if the past is prologue, Hamas will now be more, more popular at this moment, not less. One thing is absolutely clear from the attacks of October 7th. And that is that Israel can no longer ignore the grievances and the demands of the Palestinian people for independence for their own state in the West Bank and Gaza. No matter what happens, no one is going to go back to the status quo ante of October 6 and say Israel can continue to control 6 million Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza and hope for peace. So despite the pessimism, I actually think that both sides have reached the stage of what political scientists call mutually hurting stalemate, where both sides realize that the status quo is not viable and we need a solution. But who are you negotiating with? If your idea is to crush Hamas, who are you negotiating with? Because The Palestinian Authority is also having trouble maintaining control in the West Bank. You always negotiate with your enemy. You do not negotiate with your friends. In the past, the Israelis said, who do we negotiate with? We cannot shake hands with Yasser Arafat. Yet the late Prime Minister Itzhak Rabin ended up shaking hands with Arafat. The U.S. said, we cannot make peace with the Taliban. We need to crush them. Yet at the end of the day, We had to negotiate a deal with the Taliban. And today, if Hamas survives this, they are likely to emerge as the hegemonic faction in the Palestinian nationalist movement. 
and that means Israel will have to negotiate with them. And if Hamas is crushed, then Israel will have to take seriously Mahmoud Abbas or whoever is his successor and negotiate a two-state solution. I think some may hear you speak, and I feel like you're very plain in how you speak about Hamas. You don't come to them with judgment. What would you say to someone who finds that potentially problematic? I'm a political scientist and I'm trained to view things objectively. What Hamas did on October 6th, uh, October 7th, forgive me, is um, a massacre, is terrorism, and it is condemn- condemnable. No one can tolerate the random killing of innocent people, whether it's done by armed groups like Hamas or by Israel today in their bombings of Gaza. Both are forms of terrorism and they need to be condemned. That's point number one. But point number two is as a student of history and as a student of national liberation movements, you realize that we have a tendency to demonize the other side and not look to the grievances that drive support for that faction. I have been studying this for a very long time. And we know that in the past, when both sides are polarized, they demonize each other, but eventually pragmatism sets in. The Palestinian people and the Israeli people are intimately interconnected. They cannot live without each other. This is a land for two people. They have to find a way to share it. And demonizing the other side is not gonna lead to progress on that front. Mohammed, I'm so grateful for your time and your research. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Mary. Mohammed Hafez is a professor studying Islamist movements, political militancy, and violent radicalization at the Naval Postgraduate School. He's the author of Why Muslims Rebel and Suicide Bombers in Iraq, the strategy and ideology of martyrdom. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.